Hi, and welcome to the latest NEDPRO podcast. My name is Elaine McIninch, registered dietitian and working in medical education within Brighton and Sussex Medical School. Within NEDPRO, I co-lead alongside Dr. Luke Buckner, NEPHELP, which is NEDPRO's nutrition education programme for health professionals. Also, the recently formed UK Nutrition Implementation Coalition, which is a commitment of collaboration between four organisations engaged in the promotion, development or delivery of nutrition education in the UK. This consists of NEDPRO, ERAM, the Education and Research in Medical Nutrition Network, Colony Medicine UK and NutriTank. I also double up as the co-founder of ERAM alongside Dr. Kathy Martin and the nutrition lead for Culinary Medicine UK. You can read more about this work and these organisations on the NEDPRO website. So today I will be taking over the mic from James and talking to Dr. Dwayne Meller about his unique and inspiring career as a dietitian and researcher and educator. This is one of a series of podcasts which aims to promote the role and work of dietitians working in more unusual roles, which people may think of less frequently. We want to explore how dietetic training and experience may be beneficial to extended roles in medicine and public health, or indeed any barriers that may be faced in dietitians looking to branch out. Dr. Dwayne Miller has been a dietitian for over 20 years, initially working clinically in diabetes care before moving into diabetes research in Hull. After working for a number of years teaching nutrition and dietetics in universities in the UK and also in Australia, in 2019, he moved into medical education at the newly recently formed Aston Medical School in Birmingham. His primary role is teaching gastrointestinal physiology, which he uses to increase teaching on nutrition. Well done, Dwayne. And also leads on evidence-based medicine, also within Aston Medical School. This academic year, as if he didn't have enough on his plate, he has additionally taken on the role of Associate Dean in Education within the College of Health and Life Sciences at Aston University. I've had the pleasure of working more closely with Duane over the last year or so. Uh, as two dietitians working in medical education, we pretty much are unicorns. Dwayne has personally been a great source of inspiration and advice as I just get started in my move into education and research. So I'm delighted to have this further opportunity to learn more and compare notes. So welcome, Dwayne. Yeah, hi, welcome, Dwayne. And uh, yeah, so, so, so tell me a little bit more about your role. Well, it's, it's a funny one because I'm not actually employed to be a dietitian. I'm employed to teach um, the first two years at medical school. So my main job is to teach um, second year medical students at Aston Medical School GI physiology. I've also picked up, because of my, my interest, uh, evidence-based medicine within the medical school. We've only got the first three years 
and later on it might be shared with a medic who teaches on the, the latter stage of the program. So I sort of get involved in a lot of the research-based teaching and looking at data within some of the teaching programs. I've also got the role that I look after assessment in the second year of the program, so I coordinate the exams, which is, again, a different sort of role to, to one you traditionally associate as being a dietitian. And recently, I've um, moved at a college level because a medical school fits in the College of Health and Life Sciences at Aston, and I'm one of the associate deans for education. So where that links to being a dietitian is, is interesting. It's a very grand title. I'm not sure it actually uh, sort of, uh, it doesn't financially pay anymore. It's a responsibility of an interest in education. And I think, you know, sort of background as a dietitian, that helps, you know, gastrointestinal physiology, we learn about it differently from a dietetic perspective, but I think adding that into the early years of a medical program is really, really good because yeah. you can actually link in nutrition clearly. You know, it goes with simple stuff along the anatomy. You know, the sighting of an NG tube tells you anatomically where in the, the sort of abdomen and chest the stomach sits. You know, there's, there's little things about sort of um, fluid absorption through the duodenum, those things that are part and parcel of dietetic practice which help explain some of the complex physiology in medicine really quite well um you know things like stomas and bariatric surgery is very advanced in terms of medicine but when you take it back to first principles of the anatomy and physiology it actually gets those points across yeah. and then sort of more the education role is interesting because of some of my background a little bit like yours is in diabetes which is all about education and sure. adult education so it's adapting the adult education over to a university um uh, sort of situation where traditionally a lot of the teaching in the past has been didactic but if you're looking at health professional training which a lot of the health science courses are we need people to be adaptive and sort of one of the things so i picked up many years ago sort of teaching daphne and other group education was get play and the role of gamification in education and how you can actually adapt people and challenge them to learn in safe places through play and you can do that sort of um you know looking at anatomy and, and gi tract linking to nutrition but also we can look at gamification to make some of the modern ways of teaching now and this this large switch to online be more engaging so you can yeah. get people to hook in and give them rewards and feedback built into that gamification so it's a yeah, I think that being a dietitian has helped. And I think one thing we need to be confident as dietitians is we can teach just more than the nutrition. The nutrition impacts on other parts and our base training as scientists allows us to, to move across and between areas quite well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's so interesting. And uh, I, I also have, have a similar experience at, at teaching within medical school. Actually, I, I um, also taught English as a foreign language for a couple of years. So, so using not just the uh, science knowledge that we have, but using real teaching skills to get that information across. I think that's really important. And as uh, uh, medical education modernizes, I think there's a real push for more innovative ways of, of teaching. And as we've been talking about already, teaching online is a new challenge for all of us. 
I was just wondering, um, do, do you discuss with, with your students the fact that you, you're a dietitian as background and uh, do you, what, what are the, what, what's the feedback that you get on that? Um, you know, from, from my own experience, one, one reflection I have is often when I start teaching on a new module, I automatically get upgraded to a doctor in front of my title because I think there's an assumption in medical school that all teachers are doctors uh, so I think it's it, particularly as dietitians I think it's more unusual to have dietitians teaching within a curriculum um, and I, I'm just wondering about you know, just about the MDT style of teaching as a whole really and, and what your thoughts are on that. I think in some ways, I'm lucky being in a new medical school is that we haven't got that hierarchy of profession. Yeah. And in the early years, because I'm not sure you may sort of teach more once they're into the, the clinical placements more. I'm with them when they start at 18. And so, most of my colleagues are biomedical scientists. So in yeah. some ways, I'm a good transition, a useful transition between the theory and the clinical, because I sit. Great. I'm not in yeah. their clinical space, but I am aware of a clinical environment. I'm aware of consultation skills. So I sit between as almost like an adjunct between the biomedical scientists. Yeah. And that also has problems nice. that some, sometimes, you know, the, the students don't think, you know, quite as much as a doctor clinically or not in quite <laughs> as much as a biomedical scientist mm -hmm. about the basic science. And yeah, to the point that they have, that, that is a valid issue. And that means I need to work hard to maintain that and make sure I am up to date on, on both sides, which is, is difficult. And I, th I think medicine's not alone in that um all professions do tend to favor um, their own profession as teachers sure. and, it, and, and and i think in, in dietetics we have gone that way um from being taught by biochemists nutritionists medics to having more dietitians teach courses and that's not necessarily a strength yes it creates a academic um body within the profession which is needed but we also need to maintain our uh, multidisciplinary aspect of our teaching and i think across all health professions not just um, medicine nursing definitely dietetics physio we need to have a multidisciplinary approach because we can't assume as one profession we know how to teach our profession best we can learn more from others and that's one thing i'm really enjoying looking into this um education roles and associate dean is that we can actually look at how others teach and learn mm. from it yeah, we can't assume we know how to do it best yeah yeah and i think that that's uh, something that, that, that work, working outside of dietetics becomes really apparent quite quickly uh, uh thinking about how we're we're so siloed and one thing um that i i have found i'd be interested to hear your experiences is that that there's although there's we, we teach similar subjects as dietitians and as doctors there's real key differences particularly when it comes to assessment so uh, in, in my medical school, and I know common to, to many of the doctors I talk about, there's a lot of multiple choice style questions that I don't remember being a part of my training really in dietetics. 
And yeah, I'm just interested to hear because because you've taught both uh, in nutrition and dietetic courses, you've taught in medical courses. What, what do you think the main differences are in training? And is so, there perhaps how, how could we perhaps maybe learn from each and bring the best bits together? And again, there's an international perspective which I'll add in there, um, which is not done in necessarily in assessment in training of courses, but having set my um, international dietitians exams to get into Australia as a, a um, accredited practicing dietitian in Australia, that has similarities to the UK exam structure and then the exam structure is very similar in Australia as well, in that they have single best answer questions. So they're not quite the multiple yeah. choice that we may have seen as our first year of um, um, studies where you know you had one exact right answer then some of them could be ludicrous a medical um, single best answer has to have five plausible answers but only one best answer so there's sure. some deduction there the the method of assessment where you don't have a pass mark of 40 like most courses or 50 if it's a master's you actually look at competence as your base passing mark which I think is a really sensible way of looking at healthcare assessment in, in that, you know, we shouldn't be looking at, you know, being having a first is, is a desirable thing. We rank people according, and that helps them along with the attitude testing for their, their um, first jobs. Yeah, that's a great scheme. Um, it puts pressure on them. But the actual exam itself is based on competence. And that makes sense because everything, an OSCE marking is very different, you know, and... and I struggled with dietetic OSCEs in some ways because we had some marks which you could grade and some marks which were competent. And just moving across to a system that is competence-based and ha and having sort of um, flag marks within there for safety makes sense. Sure. So there's the rigour of, of assessment is different. I think one of the challenges is how that develops critical thinking. And again, shifting online, some of the discussions we're having, I'm really enjoying, is that we can't just have these closed exams which are invigilated because you can't do these sort of exams the same controlled way at home. I know a lot of medical schools are using proctoring systems, but you know, I know how to cheat those, so I'm sure students do. Um, there, there are ways around the systems that are very easy and not necessarily high tech. Yeah, you can have someone behind the screen. You know, it's, it's not hard um, if someone wanted to do it. So we need to in, in do that. And some of the the assessments using and my interest in evidence-based medicine and, and, and practice is using data-driven questions. So you have to interpret. So you oh, can't, right. you know, and it's some, something that um, I, I did in dietetics teaching, numeracy skills. Yeah. Because you know, yeah. you know, there aren't explicit requirements as in nursing for numeracy tests, but we can build them in. So there's these nice things that can be built in. And um, in terms of the structure, there's so much we can cross over and cross fertilize that we can develop the critical thinking because in an area like nutrition in particular, it's not a single answer. Yeah, that's the, I, I find the same thing. It's very difficult to teach in that way that can be boiled down to a, sing, a single based answer at the end of your lecture often. And sort of that's what the, the students often ask is for these high yield concepts. Um, so, and, and yeah, yes, but we need to then nuance that. So this is the key point, And these are the potential outcomes. And that's where your clinical judgment builds. 
to be able to deduce that. Yeah, and, and regardless of your clinical judgment, what does your patient want? Yeah. <laughs> Which is so and, key if you're talking about nutrition or behaviour change. Yeah. So it's, a, it's an interesting, and there's, there's a lot to learn sort of working across both worlds. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's interesting when you're thinking about uh, the preclinical years and, and that gap. That, that, that bridge rather between the preclinical and clinical years. I think that um, that's been one of my key learnings is adjusting my teaching style. So um, when you're used to working with health professionals and trying to, to think more sort of the, 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 the complex underlying science, but it's difficult for, for people to, to, to take that next leap and connect how that's going to be useful for when they come to meet patients so uh yeah i think as as educators perhaps thinking about where the students are at in their journey and and, and meeting them with that and there's there's bits that how we break down the complexity of a real life case into mm. the pieces that can be so how you scaffold down to a basic presentation because you rarely get a basic presentation in the real world no no. Um, and if you see one, you go, oh, I can fix this. But generally, yeah, it, it doesn't happen. Yeah. So it's actually how you, you break down and sometimes how you then accept an inaccuracy in an early years scenario to allow it to function. And then when do you tell the student there was an inaccuracy, a fudge in that early year scenario, then to then link it to the real life? It's something we don't do as health professionals very well with patients. You know, in the world of diabetes, you know, we have a lot of diabetes, uh, people living with diabetes who go on to develop renal disease. We don't bridge, we don't transition them across to the changes in their treatment that's going to imply and how that will contradict potentially earlier advice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we can do that from a nutritional point of view with the role of vegetables and potassium, but also we can look at that with ACE inhibitors. You know, if you actually look into an ACE inhibitor from a pharmacological point of view, it both protects the kidney and it's renal toxic. So how, you know, as health professionals and medics, that's hard to teach. How do we share that with patients? You know, we've got a drug that can save your kidney that's also damaging your kidney. Yeah. Depending yeah. on the situation. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think it's, it, it, uh, I, I think that that's why a lot of people are attracted to healthcare because it is a, a, a complex area that you never reach the end of, um, your understanding that they, you, you're con continuously learning not just new facts and figures but new ways of doing things as well which keeps everybody on their toes so I, I, I just with the within the role that, that you have at the moment you mentioned that you're teaching nutrition but via GI physiology what what do you think the gaps are what what do you think the challenges might be, or have been for you in in uh, trying to integrate those two things i think in some ways it's lucky because gi is all about absorption so you yeah. can actually it's all about the food going in and um, i think some of the, the challenge for me is getting my head around the embryology and how that fits because we were never really taught in dietetics about embryology and okay. actually how that impacts on the development of the gut and actually how the gut structure um in terms of examination of the gut and thinking about where the bits are from outside and how you know where the pain would present for different parts of the gut the concept of 
foregut, midgut, and hindgut. It's not something we particularly talk about, but when you actually link it together, say, oh, well, I wish I'd taught that, you know. <laughs> um, and sort of the, the uh, you know, if you know, we talk about the um, jejunum and ileum a lot in nutrition, but we don't really consider that anatomically there isn't a difference and you have to actually feel it and a surgeon would feel it because um the jejunum would clearly be more muscular better blood supply because you've got the extra villi and the absorptive then the ileum starts to become a little bit um, slimmer mm. but we wouldn't really that was not something that we would generally think about because we wouldn't do that hands-on cadaveric anatomy where you'd actually look at it I mean the, the way it wraps around the, the mesentery and yeah we talk about per, the peritoneum in terms of peritoneal dialysis but we don't really understand how that folds around and how the flow of fluid around the uh, the organs function you know and where the, the spaces are in the lesser and greater sacs these are things are new to me mm. but I actually know how the, the system works yeah. But again, that's why in, in medical school you have your, your anatomists and embryologists teaching that part, and I then deal with the physiology because I know how it works. Sure. And it, and it seems you know odd that yeah we, that we don't actually know the, the the building blocks if you like. We just know the function of it. And yeah, I, I, yeah, I guess. So do, do you think there's a place maybe for more anatomy and dietetic training? I think they used to be, but we've moved away from a lot of that because, and again, it's a difference between having seen the, the Australian structure where they have core biochemistry, core physiology as you know, sort of, you know, equivalent of a half a year's teaching in their programs mandated, as well as the basic science underneath them. So you've got a whole year of these basic biological sciences. We don't have that in the UK now oh, okay. because we, we have more of a, we've more weighted towards the sociology. But then again, in the UK, we have emphasis on learning the pharmacology linked to dietetic practice, which isn't so apparent in the Australian model. So where, if we're going to squeeze a load of anatomy and where does it go? You know, yeah, sure. Do we put the anatomy alongside the physiology? And then how do we assess that in a way that's applicable? Or do we just leave that to, to postgraduate specialisation? Um, that as so. you do more, you learn more. Yeah, and, and, and I think that, that, that um, for, for, for medical students, the same is true for the social sciences. So, mm -hmm. so if, where, where if you're uh, wanting to add in more nutrition and, and communication skills and uh, behavioral sciences, then, then there's only so much space, isn't there? Um, and I, I guess we, we are two different professions. We have different functions and different roles within uh, the NHS. And, and your other areas, I guess. Um, so yeah, but uh, but I, I think that, that there seems to be a, a lack of understanding, I guess, of each other's roles, um, where mm. we think we know what what doctors do and what doctors learn, and doctors think they know what dietitians do and what they learn, but actually, uh, perhaps the, the understanding isn't as as you would think. And I think so. The idea of a lot of health professions, and we're moving to that model is that we have areas of shared skill and areas mm. of specialization. And it's learned to respect where that area of shared skill and that specialization move away because the doctor is ultimately in charge of a, a patient's care. That's, that's a, the key decision-making, the end decision responsibility of that care is the doctors. Sure. In certain areas, that then falls to other professions. 
and we, we possibly don't we do we do have good systems for interprofessional learning but we don't actually talk about function in in those so much we tend to talk about how we'd approach case rather than what is our key function what are we looking to do and how does the system fit together um and yeah in, in some ways although we do have parts of each course which looks at the the organization of healthcare systems we when we're doing those at training or when students are doing those at training we're interested in what's the science we need to know how when can we see patients yeah <laughs> we don't think about that until a lot later on in our careers yeah. you know um i know from my dietetic training you know it was all about the biochemistry and physiology and how that made things happen because i was interested in diabetes and sport it's only later on i've realized that the sociological aspects of food are probably more important to actually influence sure. what people eat but when you're looking at sort of uh, you know, the, our students, most of them come with a biomedical background. They come with biology and chemistry. Very few of them have done any sociology or psychology before they enter university. And we suddenly expect them to move from one model of thinking into another. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And then we we sort of say oh wow they didn't get that because it was sociology they didn't get that because it was public health they didn't get that so it's not really fair we need to sort yeah. of engage how these bits fit together yeah um and nutrition fits in there as well you know we you know at aston we're we're sort of um parented or grandparented by leicester medical school so we're sharing their curriculum for our first five years as uh, uk medical schools are set up to do that and in the first year we do nutrition so as a part of our wellness program so we do this what healthy eating looks like for me we look uh, at mindfulness okay. and yeah. physical activity uh-huh. in a similar way and then that builds in the second year where we can actually look at nutrition more as a therapeutic way then hopefully sort of into towards the end of the second year and into the third year we can look at how you can communicate that to the people so it's yeah. looking after yourself looking after each other then looking after others and that model is why because one of the problems you can get is um, you can discover nutrition later on in your healthcare career and not necessarily have a rounded view of it and risk being almost evangelical about this miracle uh, nature of this diet that you've discovered, which may not work for other people. For everybody else, yeah, absolutely. Great issues. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, uh, I, I, it's interesting, isn't it? And, and uh, we, we've tried that actually to to teach nutrition as what nutrition means for you as a person first it totally bombed it didn't it wasn't that popular and and i think that that nutrition can be a bit of a marmite subject Mm. actually some people really love it and are really interested in it and it may come from maybe perhaps a bit of evangelicalism to start with So, so we have a lot of people that are into sports that like nutrition um but then but then can't really think about perhaps nutrition in the context of an elderly person who is struggling to eat and needs an ng tube you you know that that seems to be something that's quite different that's where the empathy and things need to be trained and coached yeah but again self-empathy is part of this wellness sure so bringing in early and, and certainly you know yeah you know last year it went very well with looking at mindfulness and wellness and those sort of concepts 
you know, we have a diverse population and some of them have got very strong religious beliefs, which helps bring in concepts of mindfulness, whereas others might do it through exercise. So we're actually using a very broad approach to actually look at this concept of wellness and looking at nutrition within there. We have a fun mindful eating activity, which involves some eating chocolate, which they enjoy going for a mindful walk and just communicating again and sharing ideas. It's actually looking at a very collaborative, cultured way of working. And so I, I sort of do the, the nutrition and physical activity work in there. And that's spun out. And we have other, I've started doing a similar session for the law school now because they realise that part of professions is the risk of burnout. So we need to manage that early on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And so, so it, it's slowly building and sort of, the few nutrition bits that pop up in different parts of the curriculum. I think one of the challenges historically with medicine is very much with um, population health. And it's very much from an epidemiological point of view. And I'll go, yeah, that's probably not the most interesting part of nutrition. We can actually use it to explain data and evidence-based stuff. And we need that because it's to be designed. That's great. But we also need to say, what does it mean to me? How can I look at my own biases, which is a useful tool when actually looking at consultations and then looking at how these various things impact how people live and their disease courses so i think you know there's a debate whether we have nutrition as a block subject in there to, to meet the learning outcomes that we need that the gmc state or whether we thread it through in an obvious way that it touches on you know almost every part of their course sure. um and and sort of that, that's the approach I'm taking at the moment. If it works in the early years well, because it pops up in sociology, it pops up in population health, it pops up in um, some of the physiological system blocks. But we need to make sure the, stu- the students are aware of it because they're seeing me pop up in different parts of their course. Yeah, so it becomes normal. Um, mm. Another interesting way of, of thinking about communication skills and empathy and, and how the science applies to a person is, is getting patients themselves to come and be educators. Uh, that's uh, something that I found useful in my teaching, but I really I, need to work on the uh, self-wellness thing. I think my students think yeah. I'm just a typical Brighton hippie when I talk <laughs> about that. I used to do that when I was working at Hull York when I was doing my PhD. And I had a very good uh, sort of a, the husband of a colleague who had type 1 diabetes who's great. He could teach hypos far better than I could. Yeah. I could then explain the physiology behind it, mm. but he'd give his personal experience and, and you're linking that, that symptoms, that presentation very much back to the physiology. It was a slightly different course at Hull because it was a problem-based learning course. So we had that approach from going from symptom back to... To, to, to basic science whereas sort of we're more of a team-based learning approach which is slightly different so the subtle differences in education will impact on how those things work yeah absolutely and, and using the appropriate language that that patients can understand which again i think you, you learn the very complex language of medicine and then as a practitioner you have to then translate that back down to to make sense to 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 your, your patients these are all really important skills i think the thing for all healthcare students it's not just medicine is you need to have two ways of communicating you have your scientific professional communications and then you have the the sort of the 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 patient the the public communications and again you know that's something that you tend to learn towards the end of your training and start of your career 
and some people are far better at it than others and you know that's where some of the communications and media work come in and yeah some people are good at it some people are not so good at it and it's a hard it's a hard way of writing to actually get that balance right definitely yeah definitely i think as dietitians because we don't have medicine that we can prescribe or or or, or we we may do quite soon or we have prescribing dietitians that this is a, a new area that's growing or, or we, 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 don't, we don't perform surgery or, you know, really a lot of our tool is the way that we communicate, which I think might be uh, different to other professions. Yeah, it's about persuasion. Uh, it's also about persuasion to do something that might, might not come naturally or someone might not actually want to normally do. So it's actually how you frame it. And so there's lots of complex nuances in, in the dietetic consultation that you might not actually um, see and you might not actually break down that often yeah. um, to that sort of level of granularity. And so when you're sort of dealing with other people, other professions in particular, you might have to break it down because they wouldn't naturally see what you're doing. Sure. You don't naturally see as an experienced professional. And um, is it Paul Glaslow and his group in in Queensland, they've written a very nice small book on on clinical thinking and how we go from this idea of being a novice through to an experienced practitioner. It's really useful when you're thinking about your teaching, how you can break down what you do on an automatic level to that risk decision making that you do to actually come up with that conclusion. And that's very hard for all experienced practitioners because you don't realise you do. It becomes automatic. Yeah. Yeah, you build, um, you build that muscle and, and yeah, yeah you, you, you don't think about how you how you started and how you got there. Yeah, yeah it, it's quite interesting. Our lead educator is a GP. He's got a young child and he uses this example. He's young, he was walking with a young child and they saw a, a, a person walking a chihuahua and the, the child said, that's a cat. How do you learn that's not a cat? Because it's the size of a cat. How do you learn it's a dog? Yeah. And there's various times you're learning dog, and we automatically know it's a dog. But how does that four-year-old know it's not a dog? It's a cat. And it's how we learn that. And we don't think about it. And we need to break down some of these steps and what we need to know each stage. And I think with with medical students, you know, as they start in their clinical years, a year three is very different to a year five. And if dietitians are coming across medical students, it's being aware of where people are learning on their journey and supporting them and even if you go into the foundation years and especially training they're still learning um you know we see a doctor and we think oh they know things no they 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 might benefit from a an educational conversation we can have a two-way learning dialogue i think if we do that with all health professionals i think we'll be richer as a health service and as, as individuals as well i really like that concept so having a two-way educational discussion uh, so, so it's not about um, imparting knowledge or being being the yeah. I, I, I think that's really key and uh, a, a really nice model for uh, interprofessional learning. Um, okay, yeah. So, what what do you think the opportunities might be for other dietitians that, that might want to move into medical education? I think we need to look at going beyond um, teaching just nutrition. Because if you look at medical schools, medical schools we think of from outside are huge places that employ lots of people. They don't actually employ that many people to directly teach day in, day out. 
um, they there might be opportunities in terms of guest lectures on certain topics and and inputs and a lot of medical schools are doing that but in terms of big movement i think you need to be flexible in your approach of what you're going to teach and and look beyond scope so it could be communication skills as well as the nutrition content it could be a physiological system it could be something like metabolism as well um, and working from a very practical point of view um, i think a lot of medical schools historically have gone for sort of more of an academic way of delivering that but they're realizing that's too high a level for what they the students actually need so it's very practical um delivery of, of some of that course science and be confident that with experience and looking around what you know you can offer quite a lot yeah. um supporting things like some of the oscars because there'll be some skills in the oscars that will be relevant for dietetic where it's taking history subtle difference in how they're done with medicine to, to dietetics in terms of attaining consent and, and sort of introducing yourself these are standard things across health professions where we can actually work across so i think um there's the the nutrition which is clearly there as a learning outcome and medical schools if they see a candidate who can offer something that they're looking for and they can do nutrition as well they make themselves very attractive for these these positions they come and that's that's why i was fortunate to get the position i was offered i could do the base job they were advertising but there's this extra thing as nutrition which they had a gap yeah sure so and, and it's this looking for i think there may be a time in when it's more of a generic health sort of school but there'll be roster dietitians across maybe nursing medicine and, and allied health because Increasingly, we're seeing things like pharmacy, physiotherapy, OTs needing that sort of input to make it a more holistic training. But I think at the moment, it's actually looking, is there a job that my skill set meets where being a dietitian is a bonus? Absolutely. And, and I think building it's, it's sort of branching out a little bit from what, what's traditionally thought of as, as a dietitian and, and the thinking. Yeah, and I think you're right, thinking about health education rather than this focus on medical education. I know um, starting off, this, this was a new area to me when I started. I've just completed my PG cert and then PG dip in medical education. So I think you, you, more opportunities to learn teach uh, uh, maybe maybe a good good way for, for for new graduates also yeah and i think it's a it's an idea of it's a shared dialogue as well we can learn through teaching others because mm. I've, I've learned so much about the different way they look at the same problem absolutely yeah um and you know neither of us are completely correct <laughs> and it's being able to recognize that you know that that can be challenging in medical education because this this wanting for this this exact answer approach yeah but it's actually how you frame that it, it can be managed so i think there's a definite opportunity for for new graduates because there is an appetite for nutrition within medicine it's making it's getting to fit into a system that allows it to be to be viable and i think you know the communication area and nutrition or some aspects of the physiology and nutrition is a is a very good way of doing it yeah you know, you know part of our training as well if you look at nutritional assessment is we are good at assessment we are good mm. at you know our data handling skills are probably better than we give ourselves credit for mm. you know if you think we can run a, a food diary through analysis bit software and get a spreadsheet and interpret it you know that's pretty good when we're looking at exams you know there's a big 
there's a few steps up to look at some of the aggression analysis and things like that. But I know in, in some countries, you know, you know, I've got colleagues who are Greek, that the amount of stats they get taught in their programmes are quite significant. They're good at handling data. Yeah, and as, as you're doing the um, evidence-based medicine, I think mm. that you, you, to, to understand nutrition, you have to be very good at picking apart some of the research papers and, and communicating that because it becomes very complex. Like, you know, whereas if you're thinking about medication and, and thinking about um, RCT trials, and it, it, it's far more clear-cut, I think you... you you gain a lot of skills as a dietitian in, in, in trying to explain complex research and some of the difficulties and challenges around that. So you're definitely right about research. You know, a drug trial is so much easier to yeah. pick apart than a nutrition study because you have one variable that's actually with a matched placebo. You know, placeboing in a nutrition study, you know, a high-fat versus low-fat diet, there's no placebo. No, um, no. and you don't know if you, you you can't do the dose finding ratio you did in your phase two studies of, um, which you would with the pharmaceutical agent so you know in terms of look interpreting drug trials compared to, to nutrition studies you know it can be done and a lot of people criticize nutrition research for its poor quality but if it's communicated properly with all the nuances and doubts that we were honestly there would be we'll be far better off i think definitely yeah definitely and and i think also uh yeah you're right so, so, so within the medical school you you have to to survive teaching other subjects i teach mm. in communication studies i teach diabetes subjects and i i, I suppose there's a, i i don't maybe um this is this isn't correct but i, I feel there's a a lack of confidence within the dietetic to profession to perhaps put themselves out there as the experts. Um, maybe this is something to do with per perhaps the hierarchy of medicine. And uh, you know, you yourself, you've had lots of research experience, lots of experience in education prior to coming into these roles. Uh, so I suppose, um, how do we help to upskill a profession to, to make that same contribution it's such it, a small profession. I think it's a willingness to learn and be flexible and, and move outside of traditional areas of, of, of thinking. Because if you look at medical education, most of the face-to-face -face contact and the development is with clinical teaching fellows who quite often are basically two years out of medical school themselves. Yeah. So they're, they are not employed as experts in the field. They and in some ways, if you have an expert in the field teaching, um, particularly you know, up to about year three, four medicine, they're going to have too much information. Yeah. And in, in, in some ways, it's about trying to get the key messages across. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and role modelling, uh, how you might have approached this as, as, as a novice. Uh, yet, yeah. as, as we say, when you become too expert, it's, it's difficult to unpick what you, what you know to, to, uh, to come down to, 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 not come down, that's the wrong word to use, but to uh, think about how things might be for, for somebody at the beginning. Okay, so, so, so it's, a, it's about sharing and sort of a lot of the education is about facilitation. Sure. And 
you know, you can almost argue that if you've got a core knowledge that's competent, or you can get yourself to a core knowledge of competence in that area, you don't need to be an expert, and that can be a disadvantage. Um, so as long as you know just more than the content that's covered, or adequate amount, you can then be facilitating in a, in a, in a, a logical way. So you're helping them discover, because it's not about didactic education, it's not about expert to novice. It's about bringing the novice up to a level of competence. Yeah. Sure. And I think, and, and if you look at, um, you know, dietetic education, we're probably in that position because a lot of dietetic educators probably aren't experts across the whole of dietetics, but they teach in into them because you're looking to graduate level competence. You're not looking for specialist practitioner. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think perhaps, you know, in the same vein, maybe looking at more postgraduate education and where we can integrate um, for, for, for doctors that are really hungry and, and, and want more nutrition education that are, are really seeking opportunities that don't seem to be there at the moment. And it's actually sort of supporting them to be looking to work in networks because the, the, you know, the, there's a model where you hand off patients to people who are expert when needed, but it's actually how what are my competencies what will i be what do i want to be competent to do with my patients and what do my patients actually want because do they want a little bit more yeah most patients will want more than just being handed a diet sheet they want to have an honest conversation about food and how they want to change it you know they, they may already have the information there to where they want to change it to but quite often it's just having that honest conversation about it is hard what looking at priorities looking at what better might look like and then setting someone on their journey if they need more education in depth that might be a referral along but quite often it might just be a support and starting that conversation moving forward and with simple goals being set so in, in some ways for a lot of cases if the medical aspect's been looked after from a safety point of view and, and probably there's aspects of safety around nutrition which need to be looked at the actual initial changes can be quite simple sure. and possibly focus too much on complex dietary interventions rather than thinking what's the safety aspect of this from a, uh, a holistic medical point of view and what are the simple changes that people actually do sure i mean yeah the what can be quite simple it's the how that's the mm. really challenging difficult part of this and just like, like assuming that, that I, and I think that, that there is a movement for an, an appetite for more health education within courses. And, and I really think that this is this is where we're going to uh, think about nutrition being integrated into lots of different professions. But and, and hopefully dietitians can be a really big part of that. But what do you foresee the challenges might be in this transition? I think one of the problems with nutrition is everyone's got an opinion on it. So it's actually, and dietitians have an opinion, and we possibly haven't recognised that we have had biases in the past. We're getting better and being more open to different ideas and different approaches now, which is good. But I think historically we've had a very sort of focused way that we do nutrition. And that's changed rapidly over the last yes. sort of five to ten years, I, I, I think, which is, which is a great positive. And we're taking on other ways of working. Um, the challenge is, is, I think you mentioned earlier that, and, and I've seen in American literature quite a bit, doctors expect to be treated by doctors. 
yeah. where we need to change the culture in our education that no, we're no longer being taught by experts because experts don't really exist in the modern world. Mm. We have we we have our learning facilitated by a range of people who give us a wide experience that makes us best placed to adapt to a changing healthcare environment. And it's not a thinking. Yeah, it's a critical thinking. You know, I, you know, you know, even though it's many years ago, many of us my students love House as yeah. a TV show. And House wasn't an expert. And when I think about some of the practitioners, both dietetic and medical um, practitioners and, and nurses I've worked with in the past, some of them haven't been real experts on an area. You know, one or two have, and they're brilliant people. And the knowledgeable ones, even the ones that are experts in their academic field, when they're clinically working, they don't try to be experts. They solve problems. They listen. Mm. They engage. They 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 resolve issues which isn't about being an expert it's being critically thinking being patient focused and working out what matters and how together it can be solved yeah but I, I think the challenge is our students expect experts sure the I, problem I, I is the experts are not necessarily the right people that they will then become that person hmm. But, the, you know, I suppose the message that sometimes I speak to my students about is, is that, you know, that, that there's, there's also problems within healthcare and you're the agents of change that, mm. that can change things in the future also. So it doesn't have to continue like carbon copies of what's gone before. And I think in the past we've, we've judged smart people as the people who know lots of things. Where really in our current world is a smart person is someone can assess the quality of information accurately, can apply it to a situation and help things to change. Sure, yeah. Knowing stuff now isn't the key thing. And, you can ask and, to Google. Yeah, but we need to interpret. It's how you interpret and filter. So it's that ability to filter and access is, is a key thing. How we assess that and how we build that into curriculums across professions is more challenging. You know, because the ability to recall facts is is less and less vital now. You know, we're getting to the point. You know, we we, we historically we still have in medicine. You know, the the ability, you know, the the need to be able to identify which muscle goes where. Where in reality, you can get a three dimensional interactive model that you can actually look at and actually map that to the patient you're working with you know we're getting to a point where we can use technology to actually look at muscles and insertion points of muscles that can map across the patients so we can actually see that dynamic anatomy and take it apart virtually to actually work, work and solve problems so the ability to know the insertion points of the various muscles is less important now yeah, but we're absolutely. still having that as part of our way of teaching so it's breaking free from that and that's going to take time yeah and, and i guess you know as as technology increases you, you know we, we can um, th there are uh, um diagnos diagnostic tools that that, that, uh, that they think through machine learning can can do some of the work of a human so we have to be quite smart i think to uh keep ahead of the game and and the opportunity to progress but I've, I've, I've got a friend who's a dietitian who, who works at two medical schools in Australia and more of a statistician and some of the projects he's involved in is trying to work out how consultants can go into an emergency room and spot what's going on where a junior doctor can't. 
it's yeah. a subtle cues that may be from the relative who's slightly stressed and how the and machine learning can't do that sure yeah and it's it is how we we, we identify those and i don't know and we, we need to explore how we and some of it is picked up by observing and experience that you know the interactions between people give certain cues that what the problem might be then you, you explore that machine learning doesn't do that teaching doesn't naturally do that it's actually the experiential aspect and that's why the clinical placements are so important and that's why sort of that positive engagement and, and I guess going back to the idea of what dietitians can do and is actually if, if there's teaching going on on wards and it's relative to patients speak to the um, specialists in training that are involved in that and say yeah if there's anything I can do to help if you want any points on this patient casing so, yeah and be support them not saying want to take over but if there's anything you can give could you might learn back from how they're teaching yeah that's a great skill of a dietitian i think Dwayne, is uh subtly uh managing to get the messaging not through um taking over but just uh using your best motivational interviewing mm. training to 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 offer an offer of help rather than uh trying to to, to change everything at this all, all at all at once and if there's a time there's a, there's a case being presented to teaching medical students that you're struggling with ask if you can observe yeah. they might throw up ideas that may influence your your strategy with that patient that are improved care so yeah. it works in the interest of the patient and and sort of your own professional learning as well absolutely yeah absolutely so uh, yeah i i think it's really exciting times i think there's a lot of work to be done uh but i yeah it's, it's an exciting time to be working in this area and and I, hopefully this will grow and i think think it'd be really interesting to see some of the research coming out mm. uh from across the world really because i think it, this isn't unique to the uk this is this is across the world actually i i, I think that that nutri nutrition being involved in in medicine i think is is just as you say it's a, a reflection of a wider shift in in medicine to think sort of more holistically about patients and and uh, what 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 medicine means actually for uh, uh improving health and well-being and i'm starting to explore the area of eye care so optometry which has sort of a research base in america around um, supplements and age re related mechanism generation which the evidence base is interesting um so there's areas in other professions as well i know pauline douglas in northern ireland's done work with pharmacists yes there's yes lots of interesting yes. areas of these these people people healthcare professionals who deal with the public coming off the street who may have nutritional aspects so you've got doctors you've got nurses you've got pharmacists you've got potentially optometrists you've got a whole range of professions that might be of uh, sort of interest and you know it's an exciting area that's going to yeah. grow hopefully quite rapidly over the next few years and we're not the guardians of nutrition for everything no. so so we can't give all the messages around nutrition as a profession um but we can help people to make those initial assessments and perhaps being that leaves dietitians being referred over the more complex patients mm. that we can we can really Im impact uh, with so yeah and i think there's been an idea about control but it's more about supporting through networks and sure. sort of and, and facilitating other professions to do their role more effectively and we should be confident that that's not going to make our professionals smaller 
but it's going to make our profession stronger, stronger that we can work with people rather than try and silo and look in yeah absolutely great okay so, a pleasure to talk to you Dwayne uh, thank it's you always great to have that. a chat and yeah uh look forward to our next meeting thank yeah, you thanks a lot bye bye A massive thank you once again to both Dwayne and Elaine for having this really interesting conversation. Absolutely fantastic to have two of really the superstars of medical nutrition education sit down in one place um, and have a conversation and really interesting to hear their ideas bouncing off of each other and obviously all of their experience coming to light through the interview as well. So that was really fantastic. I think one thing that stood out to me that I found very, very inspiring really is to think that as dietitians and nutrition professionals lecturing or giving further information in nutrition is really just the tip of the iceberg in what we can do we've got a lot of transferable skills we've got a, a deep understanding of things like the social determinants of health as well as the nutritional biochemistry and physiology and I think that's something that we should definitely bear in mind and indeed those who are not from a dietetic background whether you're from another allied health profession or medicine or public health we all have a lot of very transferable skills and we shouldn't just silo ourselves into our own discipline. So thanks once again to, to both Dwayne and Elaine. And a further thank you to Elaine for hosting the show. I know it's really nice to have um, different hosts every so often rather than just having myself on in, in, in every episode. So thanks again to Elaine for doing that. That said, the ne next episode is going to be one that I recorded with Dr. Tim Eden. So those of you who've listened to the show before might well remember Tim from an episode that we recorded I think back in April time at the, at the time Tim was a junior doctor working as a junior doctor on a COVID intensive care ward and giving us some of his experiences in in that setting um, Tim is going to speak to us next about his training as a dietitian his work as a dietitian and then how he went on and studied medicine afterwards and some of the things that he found with his background as a dietitian it was another really interesting conversation. Tim is always great to have a chat with. He's a great conversationalist and has really interesting insights given all of his experience. And what I will say is if you have enjoyed the podcast, if you are enjoying this mini series so far, then please do consider sharing the podcast with people you work with, people who you are mentoring, whether that be students or other people in your workplace. Um, friends, f colleagues, family, anyone really who you think would benefit or enjoy listening to the podcast. Obviously, we're quite a small podcast with a niche subject, so it is difficult to, to get our name out there and we do rely on word of mouth as much as anything. If you have enjoyed, again, you can leave us a comment, you can leave us a review or get in touch with us directly if there's things that you would like to see us covering or if you'd like to learn more about NEDPRO, possibly even get involved, then you can find us at our own website. I, on the website, you can find contact details for me. My own email address is up there. Um, you can contact us on social media. So we're on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And we're always really open to collaborations and new members and everything like that. So if you're interested in NEDPRO more generally, don't hesitate to get in touch. So thank you again for listening. Thank you again for all of your support. And I hope that you'll join us very soon for another conversation with Dr. Tim Eden on this mini project on dietitians in medical education.